finish what you started You came to the right place Them girls that you came with You might have to part with Depending on how this thing shakes Wabatosa, Kenosha Economy is in the house Another uh, episode of the New Look, which is a reference that most people have been asking me about, but our guest today will surely get because he's schooled in the way, as ways of Eisenhower. So New Look is both a reference to Northeast Wisconsin, NEW, and Eisenhower's grant strategy, uh, the New Look. Uh, we are lucky today to be taking a new look at Navy issues and strategic issues more broadly with Captain Jerry Hendricks. Jerry, how are you? I'm I'm good, and and I I love that that phrase. And of course, as a, as an Eisenhower aficionado myself, uh, I, I I like the look. Where are we talking to you today? Are you in your bunker in D.C. somewhere, or you have a very nice library? Yeah, this is actually my uh, my uh, my live-in home closet that I work out of. Um, and uh, and so I have a, a sort of two offices. Uh, one is sort of a larger library in the house, but I like to actually work in confined spaces. And so I have this space in here where I have all the books with me that I, I need at fingertip touch. Uh, and I have my computer set up in here. And this this generally where I write from. So though you are a uh, you're currently residing in the greater D.C. area, you are a Midwesterner at heart. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and how your Midwestern roots shape you to this day. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that, that question because it's, uh, you know, when, when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, uh, I, I, I don't see, uh, you know, sort of a, a defense analyst or, or anything. I, I still see a farmer from Indiana. I grew up on a dairy farm in Northeastern Indiana and, uh, and milked Holstein cows with my dad uh, from the time I was three years old and until the time I went off to Purdue University. Um, and I still go home to the family farm. My dad still lives there. And uh, in fact, I was on the phone with him just the other day as he was repairing fences that uh, the horse had trod down, down in the lower part of the barnyard. Uh, so it's 77 years old. He's still getting it done. Uh, so that's my outlook is, is an outlook of a Midwestern farmer. Uh, I did go to Purdue. I got a, a commission through the Navy ROTC program uh, and then uh, was in the Navy for 26 years. Um, and uh, flew P3s uh, as I was a naval flight officer, so I was the weapon systems as well as the navigator on board that aircraft. Um, but I also became an analyst over time and, and went back to school on several occasions, as you have, uh, and uh, actually got a couple masters and then ultimately my, my doctorate looking at Theodore Roosevelt and his use of the Navy. So uh, it's been a long path for me, but uh, at, at heart, um, you know, I'm still a Midwesterner. I, I, I married literally the girl that was uh, eight miles downriver from the, the creek that ran through my farm. Um, and we, we uh, started dating because we both love fishing and, and we still do. And our, and our children love to fish as well. Wow. Um, so in your Navy career, you talked about also pursuing some academic opportunities that I think are, are really unique, or at least in the Marine Corps would be unique. I think the Navy does a far better job at allowing officers to pursue those. How, how did that work? Were you able to take time away to get your PhD done, or did you have to do it while you were working? How, how did the Navy allow you to pursue those opportunities? Well, it's, it's funny because at the time I was coming through, uh, it wasn't that the Navy really allowed me. In fact, in many ways, I was discouraged uh, to go back and, and do education, but it was something that really drove me. Um, I finished up my first 
uh, tour in, in P3s and had a chance to either go to Jacksonville and be an instructor in the in sort of what we call the FRS Fleet Replacement Squadron. But I was also offered a set of orders to go to the Naval Postgraduate School, which I left at and took, uh, which was viewed as a step back in my career. Um, but I enjoyed it. It was 18 months, did my first master's degree looking at the at history and national security in Northeast Asia, where I looked at the development of Japanese militarism over time uh, and really fell in love with sort of the academic aspect. I came back, went to the aircraft carrier, uh, sort of repaired my career, as it were, by getting a, a breakout tour there. But I had a chance later to go into the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard as a federal executive fellow. And I doubled down and got a master's degree while I was there to sort of maximize my time at Harvard University. Uh, and then ultimately that segued in an opportunity for me to do my PhD at King's College in London, and which I did. I actually wrote my dissertation at sea while I was the uh, XO of my squadron and then actually uh, did my defense of my dissertation while I was the commanding officer of a squadron. But I did that essentially in stride. I didn't take time away from my career to do that. I, I did that while I was at sea. Well, I think the British system is perfect in that regard, because in contrast to the American academic system, you don't have as many course requirements, but you have to write a legit dissertation. And everything, as I understand it, uh, hinges on that dissertation defense, which you said was on Theodore Roosevelt and his use of the Navy. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was essentially the dissertation was on Theodore Roosevelt's use of the Navy as an instrument of coercive diplomacy. So, you know, uh, as an academic to an academic, it was uh, a spinoff from Alexander George's work on coercive diplomacy. And I used Roosevelt for case studies uh, from him. And then I, when I finished that, I converted that over to a book, which I published 10 years ago uh, on Theodore Roosevelt's naval diplomacy. Uh, which is still out there, and I still get some interesting feedback on that. But that really colored how I began to view um, the Navy and its role in the world, and the idea that the Navy has to be present, that it has this this influence or this presence uh, in the world to uphold U.S. interests. And that really began me uh, down a different path where I began to analyze the use of naval force structure as as part of American diplomacy. And, and that's really what I've been working on for the last decade. So two related questions. One, behind you, is that a, uh, a Star Wars X-Wing helmet or a helmet you wore while you were a naval aviator? And by extension and secondarily, what is the best assignment you had in your long career? Oh, gosh, that's such, you know, I, I, only had, I think, one bad tour in my entire Navy career. Yes, that, that actually is my helmet uh, from Patrol Squadron 10. Uh, that's the one I wore into Desert Storm uh, in 1991. Um, and actually, up above me on my on this side, right up here, is my VP-8 helmet that I, I wore in 1999 through 2001 when I went back for a second tour uh, in flying. Uh, but <clears throat> I, I, I enjoyed my flying tours uh, in my first tour, it was at the end of the Cold War, and I tracked uh, you know, legitimately Russian submarines. We had just finished the Cold War. The Russians were still out. They were still competing hard. They were trying to keep up at that point in time. Uh, and I got on top of a couple of Russian advanced submarines at that time, was able to track them, and really enjoyed that mental chess game between me as a relatively junior officer in the Navy and a senior Russian captain who was very experienced with a good crew and a good boat. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a great time being a, a tactical action officer on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt and did two carrier tours 
uh, both times into uh, in support of combat operations as the ship's TAO. And then, you know, I, I've had a number of just wonderful tours in inside the Pentagon working on analysis. And of course, as you know, I got to finish out my career as the director of naval history because someone found out I had I had a dissertation and I had a PhD and there were some issues going on at the Naval History and Heritage Command. And so I was verbally ordered by the Secretary of the Navy to proceed there and and sort of correct some some deficiencies. Was that so at I, Annapolis or in no, the Pentagon? That's at the Washington Navy Yard. Uh, oh, and, okay. And but uh, we had nine museums spread across the country, uh, over a hundred and eighty-seven thousand artifacts. I had eighteen thousand lineal feet of archival documents. There was something, uh, you know, uh, to a tune of about two billion dollars worth of uh, old antique oil paintings that were under our care. And so I, I got to spend two years as the curator for the Navy and director of naval history. Wonderful job. But ultimately, when it came to retire, I wanted to get back to working on strategy and analysis. And, and that's what I've been doing for about the last six years. That's a to me as an introvert and a navalist, that sounds like the, secretly the best job in government that you could possibly have. It, you also, I had a lot, I had a lot of people ask me, why, why did I retire and why did I leave that job? And, and the question was, is, was that going to be my life's work or was there something else to do? And I, I had to make the decision that there was something else I wanted to do. Didn't you also work for Andy Marshall at Office of Net Assessment? And let me extend that question to who do you consider your mentors throughout your career? Uh, great question. I've been blessed uh, to have s several mentors. Uh, so uh, I had a great first uh, commanding officer in my first squadron who continues to be a friend and mentor to me today, uh, who really taught it was to be an officer and to compete against yourself. Don't get caught up in a competition with everyone else. Compete against yourself. Uh, I did have a chance. I met Jim Stavridis when I was a lieutenant, um, and he was a one star at that point in time. And he really encouraged me to think and write more. Uh, later, I had a chance to work for Andy Marshall, which is, you know, when you when you walk in and you start working with this 90 year old man who is already a legend and you know that this is a historic figure. You know, when you're a historian and you're working for a man that you know is a historical figure who will be written about in the way that like George Kennan is written about, um, then that that you have to set aside that awe because every day you actually have to go to work. And you got to work for the guy and you got to get the job done. But he Wisconsin was Wisconsin native, George Kennan. You have to qualify that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and of course, uh, actually, he's occupies that back shelf uh, in the in the back of this thing. There's a whole Kennan shelf there. Uh, but, yeah, working for Andy was fantastic. Just a, it was like a two year advanced graduate degree. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've just been so blessed to, to work with with other leaders, but uh, including some my you know good friends like Rear Admiral Montgomery, who I roomed with. Uh, is another person I consider not only a friend, but a, a mentor as well. Great man. I just did a hearing with him this morning. Um, just final question on the kind of origin story portion of this podcast. Um, so you, okay, so you mentioned that you went to Purdue on a ROTC scholarship. So at what point did you know that you didn't want to follow, you know, in the family business of farming? Where Where do you think you got that bug for, <laughs> service or foreign policy or kind of how do you think about that? So two, two interesting things about that. Uh, one is, you know, I grew up and I had a reading bug uh, and I, I love to read books and I was reading all the time and I really had a great interest in history and biography in particular. 
which my parents encouraged in me. Um, I will tell you, I was I was in the barn and in, in the milking parlor one night, and you know we we were milking the cows, my dad and I, and in between taking off the milkers and putting on bringing in the new next three cows, um, in that cycle I would have a book there and I would be reading a book in the barn, and, and one night night my father looked at me and he said, um, you know, if you could ever find a job that paid you to read books, you'd be a millionaire. And essentially that lit a light into my head about, you know, that that's actually the ideal job for me. Um, so I, I, my, uh, I, I was blessed that my father's, I have a stepfather and a, and a dad, uh, served in the Navy and in the Army, and that national service was always an assumed part of my family upbringing. It was, it was the, not a question of if I would serve, it would be what service that I would go into. Um, and I made the choice to go Navy because I, I literally wanted to see the world. I wanted to get on ships. I wanted to fly airplanes. Uh, and that was a childhood dream. And so I went to Purdue with the idea of, of becoming a naval aviator. Uh, I, because of my eyes, I was a backseater. But I did get a chance to sail the, the, the oceans of the world and see the things I wanted to do. Uh, the big issue was my decision to stay in. Originally, I thought I was going to get out and go back home to Indiana. But uh, both my wife and I sort of fell in love with the idea of service. It was a vocation and not a job. It was something I was called to do. And so it was my, my pleasure and my honor to continue to serve uh, up until 26 years. And really, we got out at that point because I realized that I had done about as much as I could there. And there were things I wanted to work on that I could only do from outside the Navy in a civilian suit. So that's a perfect transition point. You are perhaps the most prolific uh, writer on naval issues or part of a group of about three people that are writing on these issues and arguing with each other a lot that I follow and, and rely upon for advice. Let's talk about ships. Um, maybe we start, Jerry, with, uh, you know, I'm coming to you from Green Bay, Wisconsin. We have a shipyard nearby in Marinette, and we recently uh, got some good news that we won the competition for the future frigate. Maybe help uh, the citizens of Northeast Wisconsin understand why this is important, not only from the immediate economic impact around here, but what role you see this future frigate playing in the future naval fleet. Great question, and and one that, quite frankly, has interested me for the better part of a decade now. And again, coming out of the research I had done on on Theodore Roosevelt uh, and and his upbuilding of the fleet, which is his term, upbuilding of the fleet at the beginning of the 20th century, one of the things that Roosevelt focused on was the need for a balanced fleet. And, and he recognized as he was leaving office and turning over to William Howard Taft that it wasn't balanced. And so his injunction to Taft as he was leaving was to make sure that we added the proper number of ships in what was the lower end, the cruisers, the destroyers, destroyer escorts at that time. And Roosevelt had this thought of, of this pyramid of the fleet. You had battleships, and then you would have like two cruisers to battleship, and you'd have destroyers in a certain ratio, because we recognized that you could not build a fleet of entirely of battleships. And so it was the idea of high-low mix within that. So I brought that forward and started to look at that analytically when I was working in OSD policy in 2008. And what I recognized was that the Navy, and largely the U.S. government writ large, after the Cold War had begun to invest heavily into high-end assets. Um, the idea that we were supreme and there was no one really challenging us allowed us to really just build towards the high end. Uh, but we were beginning to vacate 
the lower end, the areas of the world where we had other interests. But if you if you run short on ships, for instance, when we got less than 300 ships, suddenly we began to vacate these areas of the of the oceans where we had to find interest, but we just didn't have enough ships to send them there on a regular basis. And we were decommissioning our frigates, uh, the Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates at an accelerated pace. And I could see this inflection point coming where we were going to begin creating a vacuum in certain key regions of the world. And the problem, uh, and you know this, Mike, is that when you create a vacuum, vacuums get to be filled. And sure enough, when you, we started to not visit uh, places like South China Sea or the East China Sea or the Arctic, North Atlantic or the Baltic, then suddenly Russia steps up or China steps up and they, they begin to fill that vacuum. They want to create a sphere of influence. And what we know is that spheres become increasingly unstable and, and spheres actually lead to war because of the instability that comes with them. So I began to write about the need for a high-low mix. I began to talk about influence squadrons. Uh, I was trying to find a justification at the time for how we could most effectively use the new littoral combat ships that were coming out of our shipyards. But I also began to recognize that LCS wasn't going to solve all of our problems, that we needed sort of, you know, a, a middle infielder, uh, more of a utility player that traditionally had been filled by frigates. And so I began to advocate for a return to a frigate within the U.S. Navy, something that could do anti-submarine warfare as well as anti-surface warfare and provide much needed convoy escorts, uh, which is something that is, is actually fairly specialized to be able to steam at that rate of speed and escort surface ships like uh, combat logistics ships um, across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean. So that's where I started to write. And, uh, and I, I began that in 2009, beginning to talk about bringing back frigates. And it's, it's been a decade. So now finally we've had the selection and the selection is the, uh, the Frem design uh, that was uh, offered by uh, Fincanti uh, uh, Marinette Marine. And, and so we will get these first 10 ships up and going and hopefully we will build a lot more of them because the actual number we require is, is, is much more in excess of the 10 to 20 ships that we're talking about right now. So I guess the, the simplest way to put it would be the, these are ships that can go places that the higher end assets, destroyers and carriers can't go. So they allow us to fill those vacuums and and show the flag and do presence operations. And theoretically, particularly as we start to ramp up production, they, they should be cheaper than those other high end assets, which hopefully would allow us to have more ships overall. Correct. That is correct. And in fact, there's there's two things I want to tease out from what you just said. It's it's not just that they will be able to go places that other ships can't go in, in the sense of being able to maintain constant presence in clear areas of, of, of competition like South China Sea or the Baltic. But it's actually technically that they're able to pull into ports that no other ship in our inventory can because they're smaller. They have shallower draft. And so they can access sort of, the, sort of these medium and small size ports around the world that, quite frankly, since we've gone to sort of high end, larger combatant ships, um, we have uh, we've we stopped visiting some of those. Uh, so my 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 point here is this is going to allow us to really play a much broader field and have a level of engagement with other nations and other local populations in a way that we haven't been able to do really over the last decade. 
So why do you think our design, the Fram, won? I mean, we were up against some some stiff competition beyond the fact that Wisconsin's the best and we have the best workers in the Midwest. Uh, what do you think it was that put us over the top? Well, if I, I did sort of a, an article a couple of years ago where I, I handicapped the frigate competition. And, you know, first of all, I, I don't I think the the Navy had become less than enamored with aluminum hull constructions. Uh, so I, I thought that if the Navy was going to be satisfied with uh, with aluminum construction, that we wouldn't have even had a frigate competition to begin with. So I, I sort of discounted that. Um, my thought was, is that the national security cutter, which I believe was the Huntington Ingalls uh, entry, uh, that it had inherent limitations because it was designed to be a Coast Guard national security cutter. And so that it wasn't going to be optimal for the frigate mission, which is ASW, ASUW, and convoy escort. That design was was built with a certain bias towards the national security littoral patrol that the Coast Guard does for law enforcement. Uh, the I will tell you that the the Spanish entry uh, that was done with Bath Ironworks in Maine, I think it's a very fine frigate. I also thought it was going to come in as being far too expensive. It was mm. probably the most technically advanced uh, from the the sense of it had integrated. Aegis combat systems already in it, but I thought it was going to come in well north of the price break that we were looking for. And so as I looked at the competition, I really saw Frem, which is a very mature design. There's already 10 to 12 ships in the water. It's being used by four other navies of the world. We know essentially what it costs to build, and we also know what it costs to maintain. And it has probably the biggest margins for growth with regard to electrical power, as well as adding additional combat systems to it. So I, I really had handicapped it as, as, a, uh, as the clear leader, and I was pleased to see that the Navy agreed. Um, so uh, it, was, it was sort of a delight to me. You know, at a broader level, I think there's a lot of Wisconsinites that look back on, you know, let's go all the way back to World War II and the day of, of you know, Freedom's Forge and our ability to ramp up dramatically the production of ships and bombers and, you know, X, Y, Z. Why do you think it's so hard for us to do something similar today. What is standing in the way of our rapid march within a decade towards that goal, which is officially part of US law now, of a 355 ship Navy? Well, I think that your problem comes down to the level of bureaucracy that's grown up over the last 70 years. Uh, you know, I love the Miller book, uh, Freedom's Forge, and what we were able to do and how we would write contracts to build 50 ships and Henry Kaiser would just go out and do it. And he would build a new shipyard and just, you know, cut in the, the slips and start building ships on it. Um, we don't have that ability to get sort of cut the red tape and go direct to production. There's also an issue in that the ships that we have today are much more technically complex. Uh, you know, for instance, I was sort of um, uh, surprised when the Navy made the frigate have a requirement for, to integrate a 3D air search radar. That's an air defense, air warfare radar. That's not a mission that's normally assigned to a frigate. That is a destroyer or a cruiser mission. And if you needed to do air defense, maybe you should sign a cruiser or destroyer to escort along with the frigates. Frigates were nominally uh, directed at anti-submarine warfare as well as anti-surface warfare. And so we're asked our ships really to be jacks of all trades and masters of none these days. And I think that that's also caused problems in the development of new key platforms. If you look at the difficulties that are associated with the Ford class aircraft carrier now, which is 
totally a transformational asset that's a huge science you know fair project from the keel up and then also you look at the the truncated three ship zoomwalt class destroyer class which came in i think at about 3.8 billion dollars a ship just again another science fair project we really needed this frigate to be a a very simple design that was mature that it was well established and that we didn't tinker with too much in order to keep our costs down because coming back to a point you made earlier if this works out right we'll be able to buy two frigates for the price of one destroyer and that is the ratio that we need if we are really going to grow the fleet quickly the other things that go with this and this is a key and this is one of the reasons why i was so uh, enamored with frem is that there's room you know there's a space actually behind the bridge on the frem that's a mission control space that you can use for special forces or you can use to put uh, teams in to control unmanned platforms. Well, as the Navy begins to look at buying unmanned surface vessels, unmanned aerial vehicles, or even unmanned submarines, who's going to control those? Where will those be controlled from? Well, this particular class of ship has the space already built in and the C4I architecture, the communications architecture, to be that central node of the Navy of the future. Talk a little bit more about unmanned. This is a definitely a flashpoint on the Sea Power Subcommittee, uh, on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, there are those, myself included, who would like to see us move aggressively towards the development and use of unmanned platforms, particularly unmanned underwater vessels and unmanned surface vessels. Um, but there's a question that a lot of my smart colleagues like Congresswoman Loria raise about how quickly we can do that, whether we even have uh, the tech to do it right now. Just kind of where do you see unmanned platforms, uh, you know, in terms of that overall 355 ship fleet of the future with a better high-low mix? Well, I, uh, first of all, I do think that they, they have to be part of that 355-plus architecture. They, they, they absolutely have their— So I they need should be that. counted. This is something—listeners may know right now—correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry. They're not—they don't really count towards that 355-ship number. That is correct. They don't. And, of course, I've, I've actually written that we have to count the unmanned. Uh, and, in fact, there's plenty of historical precedent for counting experimental unmanned platforms and so on. You know, we actually uh, counted dirigibles— uh, back in the 1920s, and yet we didn't count, for instance, the Langley, which was the first aircraft carrier for the first couple of years that she was in the fleet, uh, because she was too experimental. And yet the aircraft carrier is the center of the fleet today, and dirigibles are uh, either on the bottom of the Atlantic or in you know parts of them are in museums. So I think that there's a, a call for that. Now, that being said, I think we have to move cautiously. There's, there's Someone uh, shared this insight with me. Until someone can show me a diesel engine that can run for 30 days without a man monitoring it, a, a diesel marine engine, you know, the most basic component of an unmanned platform at sea would be its propulsion unit. And yet we really haven't done the tests um, to uh, putting a diesel on a stand and running it for 30 days and having everyone leave the room and just see how it self monitors itself and how it will do its own maintenance and how we'll communicate that architecture. So if we start looking at basic components like the diesel, like the radios, and you start saying, how well do they actually stand up under maritime conditions? You know, the fact is though, that uh, Wisconsin and the Great Lakes 
are a great place for the Navy to experiment with those types of things. They're the largest inland seas in the world, and it's a great place, I think, for us to begin doing that experimentation in conditions sort of away from prying eyes. We've often said we should be practicing amphibious landings on the Upper Peninsula, just to remind them <laughs> that that used to belong to Wisconsin, and we will take it back at some point. So I think there's a, a there's definitely a synergy that we have yet to explore between our lines of thinking here. You know, as a as a Hoosier, I am not going to get involved in this Michigan Wisconsin thing going on. You know, we're just happy to have uh, you know our dunes there at the southern end of Lake Michigan. Other than that, we're going to leave that up to you guys. I married a, a Michigan grad, if you can believe it, but she's from Green Bay, so she's at least a Packers fan. Yeah. Um, uh, so okay, uh, let's get into the the debate about carriers, the future of the carrier. Did I see something yesterday that the Navy is shelving a future carrier or a lightning carrier study? I haven't read that article yet. I just saved it. Talk to me about that. And then let's just talk more broadly about the role of carriers going forward. Um, so there was an article that came out yesterday, someone in reviewing uh, the written replies of the designated nominee, uh, Sec uh, Ambassador Kenneth Braithwaite. In his 138 pages of written replies to questions from the Senate, um, one of the things he was asked about was the future carrier. And the former acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, had set up a future carrier 2030 commission to look at a alternative design for the, uh, for the Navy, something beyond the USS Ford due to the high costs associated with the Ford class carrier and the technical issues associated with it. Um, so this commission had been in place and, you know, uh, full disclosure, I had done some consulting work with that commission doing some historical research. Um, I no longer have a relationship with the with the, the commission or the secretary of the Navy's office at this point. But during his written reply, uh, designate uh, Secretary Braithwaite made the point that he intended to continue with the Ford class. And and then after that became that news came out, the acting secretary of the Navy, McPherson, uh, stated that the future carrier commission would be shut down and its work would would end. So it looks like the Navy is committed to continuing to build the Ford, despite the fact that it still as I think only five of its 11 weapons elevators are operational at this point in time. And despite the ongoing criticism of the class that's coming from the White House, from the president himself. So that ought to be an interesting conversation going forward. That being said, I do think that there's room to have a conversation about uh, what type of aircraft carrier we actually need um, that, that would get us beyond the Ford class. Because I think a lot of things have changed since we designed the Ford back in the late 1990s. The air wing has gone from 85 airplanes and air wing down to 65 airplanes per air wing. Uh, we need to look at the future of unmanned aircraft uh, on the carrier deck and what that means for carrier design. And we should also look at cost as a driving factor. We simply cannot afford to be spending $15 billion of the Navy's budget on, on these single platforms. Um, and, uh, and we need to find some way of sort of breaking that cross curve. So to put it in terms of the high-low mix of which you're an apostle, this would amount to putting more resources in the high, potentially at the expense of the low. But I think the the critics of the utility of carriers going forward often point to advances in uh, the PLA's rocket force, for example, and the ability of 
the Chinese Communist Party to kill carriers, to put it very simplistically, for a modest investment of their own resources. You've talked about the problem really being a problem of range of the carrier air wing. Maybe explain that to my tens of listeners. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I actually, while I was still on active duty, uh, wrote a paper called At What Cost a Carrier, where I did sort of a cost net assessment of how much it was costing us to build these Ford class carriers versus uh, what the Chinese could get in terms of numbers of missiles uh, for essentially spending the same amount of money. And, and the ratio is something like 14,000 missiles could be purchased for the cost of one of our new nuclear aircraft carriers. And that's a ratio that's very difficult for us to defend against. Um, I then wrote a subsequent paper where I, uh, which was called um, Retreat from Range, which was a study of the declining range, the average range of the carrier air wing over time. During the Cold War, when we first built supercarriers, the supercarrier was, was designed to carry a large enough airplane that could carry a nuclear weapon deep into the heart of the Soviet Union. That's the whole reason we went to carriers this large. Uh, wow. And so that air wing could do, uh, its average range was about 1,100 nautical miles. Today, the range of your carrier air wing is just around 500 nautical miles. So it's, it's in half. And so this has driven us to actually bringing our carriers in closer and closer to land because the shorter your range, uh, the more times that you have to, you know, you have to get the airplane close enough to the target to have impact. And then so we began to emphasize uh, what we call deck cycle time, where we, how many times can I launch this short-ranged airplane per day in, in service targets? So one of the, the arguments I've been making is that we really need to invest in an air wing that has an increased range. And probably the cheapest and most efficient way of doing that is going with unmanned platforms, unmanned combat aerial vehicles that extend the range of the carrier, allowing it to stay outside of the range of the Chinese DF-21 and DF-26 missiles and still be able to hit critical targets uh, ashore. And I think that that's the way the argument should be going. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, the Navy has not really engaged with a, a reform of its air wing, and that's something I think that we have to continue to encourage them to do. So correct me if I'm wrong, we have unmanned systems in development right now, the MQ-25, is that it? Uh, however, they are being developed as refueling platforms and not the lethal strike platforms that you just described. That is correct. So the MQ-25, uh, which is going to be built by Boeing, uh, is essentially a mission tanker. So it has the ability to fully refuel two F-18 uh, Hornets at about 500 miles from the ship, thus extending their range probably to about 800, 850 miles before they have to turn around and come home. The MQ-25, however, is not a strike asset, so it's not stealthy. It doesn't. It cannot carry the weapons. It cannot go and do the mission itself. So it's it's an interim solution to extend the range of manned aircraft. The problem with it is, is I'm not going to send F-18s to hit distant targets. I would probably today send joint strike fighters, and the MQ-25 was not optimized, for instance, to fully refuel two F-35 joint strike fighters. So I think that was a mistake in that. And we also missed an opportunity to buy an unmanned vehicle that could have been both a strike asset and a tanker, uh, which is one of the things I'd been writing about a few years ago. Um, you know, we had a prototype that the Navy had purchased and, and built, uh, the X-47B, which was an all-aspect stealth 
uh, aircraft uh, that had about 1,500 nautical miles of range. It could carry about 2,000 pounds of ordnance. Uh, we, we took it off from the aircraft carrier deck. We landed it on the aircraft carrier deck. We did refueling tests with it. But then we shelved those two prototypes and we put them away and really turned our back on an asset that I think we could have gone deep in and continuing to develop and to make it a true UCAV to come from the carrier deck and actually be able to strike targets at distant ranges. You know, I guess just to go back to the carrier point, what troubles me about the idea that we're shutting down the future aircraft carrier study is the idea that it's somehow verboten to even debate these things. And I say that as someone who's supported and will continue to support the role of aircraft carriers in the fleet, though I favor a expansion of the small surface combatants in our fleet. And I don't think it needs to come at the expense of carriers. But uh, do you think this is a response to just political pressure? I mean, it seems I guess what I'm getting is every time we even talk about things like the lightning carrier, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're committing some sin or we're swearing in church. Why, why can't we debate these things? It, it is the strangest thing, uh, Mike, in that I think that there is a sense amongst leadership that everything is so much at risk. Everything is so much on edge. The budget is so pressurized that now is simply not the time to have this type of debate. We need to rally around and get behind the programs of record. And we all need to come to church and sing the same hymn in order to promote the programs that we're working on right now. And somehow we can have that debate that you're discussing at some distant nirvana point in the future where we have room in the budget or room in the strategic environment to have that conversation. But the fact of the matter is, is now is the exact moment we need it because the crisis is coming. For those of us who are historians as well as strategists, we can see the confluence of events, be it demographics, economics, military competition, that's coming with regard to the United States and China. And, and we need to have this debate to better position the U.S. to perform well in that, that potential war. And right now, we are sub-optimized with what we've got. And so I really think the debate is absolutely necessary now. And I am disappointed and have been disappointed at the level to which the Navy will engage in that debate. Um, and I think, and what I've said this to the Secretary of Defense, you know, for those who are nervous about engaging in that debate, I mean, look at look at the, what the Commandant has achieved with his planning guidance and really talking about very verboten things, but finding a receptive audience because he engaged directly in these debates. And so I think the Navy can do something similar. I agree, but I'm also been very interested in watching how the stories are starting to come out that have been critical of Commandant <laughs> Berger. And you can see the interest groups, both within the core as well within industry, that are coming out to attempt to undercut the very reforms that he's trying to make. And so this is a classic flashback example, you know, snapback, I should say, uh, against someone who's trying to move a, a large vested community in a different direction. So I, I wish him the best, and, and I'm, a, I'm a wholesale supporter of him, because if we get the Marine Corps to move, that will introduce flexibility that we can consider changes in the Navy's force structure along with the Marine Corps' force structure. You know, one thing that, you know, if you read John Lehman's memoir, uh, Command of the Seas, I think is the title. Uh, he's written a few books. Um, you really get a sense for how that competition, the, the antibodies in the five-sided building, the inertia uh, has always been there and how difficult it is to make major change, but how dependent it was upon his 
willingness to make the case for sea power and the fact that Reagan backed him up in making that case. To what extent do you think these changes depend upon the Secretary of the Navy being an apostle for American sea power? It's, it's in, you use the term ap- uh, apostle. I use the term uh, an evangelist. Um, you know, that someone who, you know, first of all, Lehman is unique in our post-World War II secretaries of the Navy in the sense that he combines uh, being a thinker with also having been a man of action. Um, so we've, we've actually, I think, had, you know, six or seven fairly influential SECNAVs uh, since 1945. But Lehman is, is sort of the measuring stick by which everyone else looks and measures themselves. But he was a man, you know, who was an active officer in the reserves. He had served in the National Security Council under Kissinger, so he understood the bureaucracy and how to fight bureaucracies. He was also a thinker who's published a number of books and is still publishing just absolutely cutting-edge op-eds even today. And so Lehman is sort of this, this guy who has the ability. Lehman had the ability to engage both outside of the building with the public in a dialogue, but also he was a knife fighter inside the building. And when he was uh, thwarted by the deputy secretary of defense, you know, and it's a classic example in his book, Command of the Seas, where he talked about that he simply sent a message to the White House and got the president to issue a statement in support of a larger Navy at the very moment that the bureaucracy was trying to undercut layman's initiatives in the, in the building. He did not get a plays well with others checkmark on his report card. But the fact is, is he did grow the Navy by some 84 ships during his seven and a half years as Secretary of the Navy and got us nearly to 600 ships. And really, when I look back at the type of leadership that the Navy needs, it needs someone who is so vested uh, that they can explain not only that we need a larger Navy, but why to a broader American public. You know, to be able to go on the TV and do meet the press on Sunday morning and explain to someone like Chuck Todd why it is that we really need these larger numbers and why we need more frigates and why we need more carriers or why we need more submarines in a way that's understood, uh, that can be understood by the people watching those shows at home. We haven't had that type of leadership in a long, long time. This That's such a good point. It's been my, I think, the thing I've written about the most in the last three years in Congress. It's and I And I consider myself part of the problem in that I think it's easy for us who are shipbuilding advocates and sea power advocates just to genuflect at the altar of 355 to extend our religious metaphor without doing the harder work of sort of laying out in terms of geopolitics, geography, and international politics, and our own domestic economy, why 355? Um, Do you think, and I, I commend Braithwaite for being very candid in his confirmation hearing about the fact that the Navy is sailing and troubled waters, I think the phrase he used. We've had turnover in secretaries of the Navy recently. We've also had a generation of really talented officers wiped out by a variety of scandals. I've sort of provocatively said that had the Chinese or the PLA Navy set out to destroy our Navy, they could have done, they probably couldn't have done a better job than, you know, Fat Leonard combined with a variety of other crises has done in recent years. Where do you think the Navy is right now in terms of morale? in light of what we've seen with these recent scandals, for lack of a better term? I, I, I think the Navy's in terrible shape uh, with regard to morale. And I also think that we're, we're dealing with that, the issue that you just highlighted between the Fat Leonard uh, scandal 
and then the 2017 accidents, which caused us to relieve a number of senior flag officers, some of which were, were great intellectual leaders of the Navy, um, and, and got them out of the way. And even now, I think with the COVID crisis and, and the, the ongoing investigation that's going on right now dealing with the TR uh, and how uh, COVID was handled with that particular ship, with its port visits and everything, I think there's a threat that we'll see even some more people uh, asked to leave and go home. Um, so the fact is, is we've lost a generation of, of intellectual and operational leaders from the Navy, uh, specifically those with deep wells of experience in the Pacific, uh, which is the major area of competition. You know, Admiral Davidson, who is now our Indo-PACOM commander, had been the essentially the Atlantic Fleet commander at Fleet Forces Command when he was moved to the Pacific. He's, he's not deeply, uh, his flag tours have not been in the Pacific. And we really need to have that sort of deep well of knowledge there that understands the geostrategic competition. We don't have that. And, uh, and I think we need to have an honest review of our one and two stars to find who the smart, brilliant, up and coming ones are and try to accelerate them into positions. Uh, because right now, you know, the, I think the Army and the Air Force are in much stronger position with regard to senior flag leadership than the Navy is. Uh, and, and we need to rectify that. In the last year of the turnovers in the front office with the Secretary of the Navy have also not been good for the Navy. We, we need to get on to having stable civilian leadership and reestablish that balance between civilian and military leadership, which I think, quite frankly, has gotten a little bit confused in recent years. Uh, and I, I do, you know, I, I kind of bring that back uh, to former Secretary of Defense Mattis, who I think placed a great deal of emphasis on deferring to the four stars. And we need to have that balance between military and civilian leaders. Well, very well said. So we have about 10 minutes left. I kind of want to transition to more fun topics. Not that, I mean, this is fun for us. You know, we This could, is fun for you and I. Yeah. We, we can nerd out on this all day. Um, wait, what was your call sign in the Navy? Uh, great, great question. So uh, everyone calls me Hayes. Uh, Hayes? So, Hayes. So obviously with my last name and my first name, uh, it led itself uh, at the beginning. Someone wanted to call me Jimmy. That didn't stick. Uh, so uh, but my flight crew began first to call me Purple Hayes and then ultimately Hayes. So uh, I can always tell if I'm around someone that I've flown with, if they refer to me as Hayes. So Jimmy went to Jimmy Hendrix, went to Purple Hayes, went to Hayes. Is that the evolution? All within about a year's time, first year in uh, VP10 back in 1990. I love that. Um, have you seen, I saw uh, Admiral uh, uh, Harry Harris the other day. He seems in his new civilian life, well, I just saw him online, to have grown a, a very bizarre mustache. Have you seen this? I, I have, and I'm deeply, deeply envious. We call that a deployment stash. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, uh, Mrs. Hendricks in this time of COVID has has asked me to actually grow a goatee, which is why my face looks slightly dirtier now. We're going to see what this looks like. Uh, I also this is the longest my hair has been since 1983 when I went to Purdue's campus to begin my ROTC. So, uh, <laughs> so we're seeing. But yeah, Harry's got that stash going, and uh, and I got to tell you, I find it. I've known Harry Harris since I was a lieutenant JG, uh, and that is the stash that he's wanted all of his adult life. So did you ever work for him or with him, or were you guys of the same cohort? We were not. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to go work for him, but I, I have to tell you, uh, Ambassador Harris has a reputation for being a total workaholic. Uh, and, uh, and so 
Uh, I uh, I tended to avoid directly working for uh, Harry Harris because I don't have the energy to keep up with him. Uh, he took me out on a run one day and just about killed me. And so uh, I have had uh, I've I've had reason to sort of uh, I love to work with Harry, but not for Harry. Okay, but as I choke on my water. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, what are the best? movies about the Navy, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, obviously, Top Gun is a cultural icon, uh, and it came out when I was in college and really encouraged me to go naval aviation. Uh, that being said, I so also... where do you stand on the sequel, really quick? Top Gun Maverick. Obviously, there's been some controversy around uh, potential censorship by China taking the Taiwan patch off Maverick's jacket. What are your thoughts on the sequel? Well, I, I'm deeply disappointed that Hollywood has has caved to China's uh, uh, pressure on that. And I, you know, anyone who's a naval aviator, you know, recognizes that coat and understands what's happened. And we all think it's sort of a cop out. Um, but you know, does that mean that I'm not going to go see it? No, I'm I'm going to be there as soon as it comes out because, quite frankly, you know, watching just the the previews of it makes me feel 20 years old again. So I'm I'm interested <laughs> in seeing that. Uh, I also tell you, I love uh, the movie uh, In Harm's Way, um, which is a, a sort of a pseudo bad John Wayne film about about cruiser uh, warfare back during World War II. Um, I, I went to see Midway when it came out last year. I was prepared uh, to be appalled by it. But in fact, I, I found it a good movie in the sense that anything that causes the American people to engage with what is the greatest battle in the history of, of naval battles, the Battle of Midway, uh, I'm, I'm anxious to have people see that. Um, I enjoy Midway. I'll say it was it was cheesy, but it was good. I mean, it was fun. It was I don't know. And I didn't know much about uh, the pilot whose name I'm now shamefully forgetting. But then I it, it kind of forced me to go down a rabbit hole. And that guy, I mean, what an incredible story that is. Yeah, I think you're talking about Dick Webb. Um, Dick Webb. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Navy Cross, only guy to sink two aircraft carriers in a day. Um, you know, uh, something that will never be uh, accomplished again, uh, hopefully. Um, and the, all the point about that as well is he suffered a, a debilitating injury, you know, with his, by burning his lungs uh, during that flight. And so he never flew again. Uh, really sort of a tragedy in that sense. Um, I also tell you, I love Master and Commander, and we'll sit down and watch that I've over and over again. I've never watched it. I need oh. to watch it. You do, you do, and and if you haven't read the books, and I'm I'm ten books during this time of COVID, I'm I'm going through uh, the Aubrey Matron series again, and I'm ten books into it over the last uh, eight weeks. So uh, so that's an, another great book read. Uh, fiction or historical fiction about the Navy? Would you put, you know, the Kane Mutiny in that? What are some good books for those who are interested in in fiction that involves the U.S. Navy? Oh, you know. Anything by Herman Woke uh, is is fantastic because as a Naval Academy graduate and a guy who served, he he gets to the culture of the Navy, but he also gets to other social issues. So Kane Mutiny uh, has a lot of social issues uh, dealing with the place of people of the Jewish faith in, in the Navy and in American life and so on. That's a, a sub theme within that. Also, his two uh, massive books. Uh, Winds of War and War and Remembrance, which, you know, if you have a summer off, you can go and read those. Those are both tremendous. And looking at the vast scape of the geopolitical issues uh, behind the Navy and its role in World War II and the, and the years leading up to it. So Woke is fantastic. Um, you know, I again, 
you know, I, I grew up reading uh, fiction like uh, the Horatio Hornblower books and Aubrey Matron, which are great. That gets at the culture of the Navy and the sense of um, the sailing ship era and how it continues to influence the way that we think about navies today. Uh, and there's a couple of books that were called uh, In Harm's Way, which the movie was based upon. And there's another book that I read called The Admiral when I was growing up that really colored the way that I, I thought about Navy culture and, and the outsider in Navy culture, sort of the guy who doesn't come from the academy, uh, but, uh, but has a tremendous impact as he, as he comes up through the ranks. Two uh, movie questions. How do you rate Hunt for Red? I know you're not a submariner, but Hunt for Red October and Crimson Tide. Oh, it's not even close. Uh, it's not even close. Um, Crimson Tide, I, 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 I don't watch that often. I think I've seen it once or twice. I cannot walk past a television set that has Hunt for Red October on and not stop and sit down and watch the rest of it. Um, I have the, uh, the editor's cut of Hunt for Red October. Uh, I love that novel that it's based upon so much that I actually, it's the only novel I own in three languages. Uh, I taught myself how to read in French and in German by getting the, the foreign language versions of those and then reading them. Uh, that's how I actually got through my, my language comps for my doctorate was with The Hunt for Red October. Uh, and I read it the first time as a midshipman on board the USS John C. Calhoun, 600 feet below the Atlantic Ocean in the missile tube alley which is where I went and, and, uh, and hid out to read Hunt for Red October the first time as a young midshipman. Wow. So you're also a, a sci-fi fan. Uh, we, we, we share yep. that. I, I uh, spoke at a sci-fi conference you uh, had a hand in organizing at the Naval Academy. What are some of your sci-fi all-time favorites? Oh, I mean, obviously, uh, I, I read Star Trek um, religiously as a child. And in fact, one of the first times I actually sat down on the high school bleachers uh, with the, the girl who became my wife, uh, I was sitting reading the novelized uh, version of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And she was and reading. And she continued talking to you. She was reading uh, Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we, to burn. we started into a conversation about science fiction and, and how, how we enjoyed reading it. Uh, I also read Honor Harrington, uh, the, the, the Weber, David Weber books, um, which are you know, based upon sort of a Navy setting in the distant future, some thousand years in the future. Uh, but still with a strong naval motif as you have these great fleets ranging back and forth. Of course, I grew up on Star Wars, uh, going to the movies, and I really enjoy those. Uh, but uh, there's a couple other books uh, by uh, David Feintock, which are called uh, The Hope Series, that deals with a character by the name of Nicholas Seafort, which actually you would enjoy, Mike, because there's a lot of morality and ethics. It's really a study in the morality and ethics of officers, uh, and I enjoy reading those for the way that he constantly uh, steals himself to make the hard decision that's politically unpopular, but it's the moral thing to do. And I, I enjoy reading those books uh, very much. And recently I came across a new uh, set of books that's called the Legacy Series, uh, Legacy Fleet Series, which deals with uh, sort of uh, a war with aliens, and then they had to revert to their older ships because the new ships all get taken out. Sort of a Battlestar Galactica, the, the redux theme, in that the high tech of the new ships don't work, but the older ships do. So anyways, I'm, I've been reading a, a lot of things right now in this time of COVID while I'm also writing. Well, you have some highbrow books behind you. I see, I, see, I think, Neil Ferguson's uh, volume one of Kissinger there. I think I see H.R. McMaster's 
dereliction of duty behind you? What are kind of your, you mentioned at the beginning books that you need to have at your fingertip for reference. What would, what would those be? Uh, so let's see, you know, Kissinger's nuclear weapons, Khan's thermal nuclear war, Kennan on Russia and the atom in the West, Wizards of Armageddon. So this is the right, right beside me. This is the stuff I need immediately. I've got uh, Mahan and Mackinder, uh, Corbett up on the next shelf, Lootwalk on strategy. Uh, here's uh, Friedman's new strategy book, Brody. So I got three books of Brody's here. And then as we go back down there, uh, Stavridis, by the way, is right here on this shelf. Uh, All my foreign affairs, history of the Navy. Those are my Hornblower and uh, Jack Aubrey books. And then Kennan's got his own thing. Eisenhower's got his own shelf back there, Kissinger. And then a lot of science and technology and economics all the way in the back. But this is my this is my reference library. This is the stuff I pull day in, day out. Uh, and all of Norman Friedman's uh, books on the Navy, you know, history of cruisers, aircraft carriers, destroyers. I've got all those in here as well. And I, I've actually been admiring the books behind you as well. And just Mine's- seeing how many... How Mine's many? not organized at all. There's some weird ones in there. I I, I've, I realized uh, that I had uh, Shaquille O'Neal's biography on one of my bookshelves when I did a TV interview the other day. And I <laughs> so I took it off and then I put it back on because I thought it was funny. And I don't know why. I still have that book from when I was 16 and obsessed with Shaquille O'Neal. So there's a lot of, a lot of lowbrow mixed with the highbrow uh, yeah. on my shelf. Um, okay, so final question here. Let's say... Uh, you you come uh, to visit us in in northeast Wisconsin here, you know we're we're having a beer, uh, you know, uh, and uh, a young kid comes up to us and says, you know, Captain Hendricks, really admire your career. Consi- I'm considering a a career in in service, both military and I, you know, I love policy. I want to write. What advice would you have for that young Wisconsinite interested in foreign policy and national service? Um, you know, first of all, uh, do what you're called to, to do. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, uh, you know, my time in the Navy was not a job. In, in the end, it became a vocation. It was something like the priesthood that I, I felt that I was called to do to wear the cloth of the nation and render service to it. It's something that I still miss, um, the idea of actually being of service, in service to the nation. And so if you feel that call, then by all means, do that. That's what the nation needs. It needs people who want to dedicate themselves and their lives really to the betterment of their country and their communities at at the most essential level out there. If you're called to do policy and think and read and study, uh, be prepared um, to be challenged and be prepared to challenge back. Um, you know, I have found that one of the roles that I have served is to be the guy in the room who tells the emperor he has no clothes. Um, that is not the path to becoming an admiral in the Navy or a general in the Army or the Marine Corps or the Air Force. But the fact is, is if you enjoy that sort of intellectual stimulation, then by all means do it. But make sure that you argue from evidence and not argue from opinion. Um, no one really should care what your feelings are. They want to know what your argument is and be prepared to take the time to write and footnote and back yourself up if you want to create a solid argument. And, and then I would tell them to be prepared for an interesting life. And, and I say that in the terms of the Chinese curse. You know, there's good and then there's bad uh, that goes along with that. It will not be necessarily intellectually comfortable But if you want to be the man in the arena, coming back to Theodore Roosevelt here at the very end, if you want to be the man in the arena, then jump in. 
but prepared to have your face be marred with dust and sweat and blood uh, in the intellectual arguments that will that will follow. Very well said by Captain Jerry Hendricks. Jerry, thank you for helping us take a new look at uh, the United States Navy and shipbuilding and all manner of other things. Thank you. Thank you.